turn to the person next to you and ask them, what do they love and what do they hate about Sydney? What do, you, what do they love and what do they hate about Sydney? Okay. Uh, does anyone want to share? What do you love, what do you hate about Sydney? Murray hates the coffee snobbery. <laughs> True, but I have heard you. Uh, anyone else want to share? Stegs, you got a smirk on your face? Yeah. Uh, Josh? I love the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Anyone else want to share? No. Why not? I hate the Awesome. Move to a country town and you'll never have to. You just. Yeah. <laughs> Hate how expensive it is, yeah. Large chips are more with fifteen dollars Large chips. Yeah. Anyway. Whereas six donuts for six bucks in Berry. Berry donut van, amazing. <laughs> Anyone else? You reckon I reckon that's cheap. I we're talking about we, they could put it up. Grant and I reckon they could easily put it up just nine bucks and no one would flinch. Anyway, anyway anything else? Nah. Well, I think um, it's not always to live, work and play in the city and a lot of people find it big, lonely and uh, they find the temptations of living in the city uh, overwhelming, uh, really. And a friend of mine just co- happened, just so happened, who came and preached here last year, Michael Jensen. Actually, we're going to have him this year, going to have his brother, Dave Jensen, just after Easter, and he's going to be uh, really good. But he wrote this this week, and he's, quite, he's a great writer, so I'm going to read a bit of it. He says, um, with this, Sydney, a celestial city with a dark heart, a beautiful city built first on fearful desperation and then on greed. It's a city I love deeply and feel completely at home in. It's a remarkable city, beautiful, prosperous and temperate. It glistens like a jewel on a sunny day with the water and mountains and the fingers of sandstone jutting out into the ham harbour where the natural is marvellously adorned by the man-made. In it dwell a hundred nations, people of nearly every tribe and tongue and cuisine. There is no need for walls around our city, and she delivers prosperity and delight. The playwright David Williamson called her the Emerald City. But then he goes on, but the outward appearance, he says, conceals a heart of darkness. Beneath the civilization is an unbridled savagery. He says author John Birmingham called his biography of Sydney. Does anyone know? <laughs> Leviathan, that's right, because he found beastly and monstrous things everywhere. He goes on, the city itself was founded on brutality and theft, built on the bones of the indigenous corrupt, uh, built on the bones of the indigenous inhabitants by the brutalized criminal classes of England. The city has been synonymous with police corruption. A colourful Sydney identity doesn't refer to a fashionable one, but a shady one. Um, 
He goes on, the city is run basically by the principle, so long as middle-class voters can keep sipping their lattes and singeing their sausages and imagining that they live in a prosperous and fair society, then those that want to do evil can, re- can do so with relative freedom. We wake every morning, he concludes, to the news of another spray of bullets in the West, but who really cares? And far from being a united nation, the ethnic ghettos of Sydney remain a visible sign of division right amongst us, right? He, he, he puts the beauty and the beast together in our city. And, you know, the question is, is it as gorgeous as Paul Kelly depicts it? You know, what he says, have you ever seen Sydney from a 7 to 7 at night? Sydney shines. Such a beautiful light. And I can see Bondi through my window way off to the right and the curling waves on the distant break and the sleeping city just about to wake. Have you ever seen Sydney from a 727 at night? And that's the beauty of it. Is it like that or is it, as Tim Friedman from the Whitlam's put it, my city is a whore, opened herself up to the world, jumped up and down in pastel shirts and lathered up thinking about designs for t-shirts. You've got to love this city for its body and not its brain. Which one is it? I think it's probably a little bit of a mix of both. And I remember reading, I think in the papers just recently, there's been all this reflection on the city. And um, there's a recent piece by Wendy Squires in the City Morning Herald. And she writes a letter to the Sydney, uh, to Sydney, the city, as though it's her friend. And it's fascinating. And she laments the fact that our city is preoccupied with its own beauty power, sex, and by drug use. And she writes to it saying this, and this is how she concludes, Narcissus fell into his own reflection and drowned, you know. You are surrounded by water, my old friend. Beware. I think that's a great, you know, there, I think there is this writing on the wall for our city. I think there is a recognition that actually perhaps, perhaps we are too hedonistic. You know, perhaps we are too selfish in our quest to satisfy every desire. And the last opening illustration I'll give you, I love the opening illustration, because I just see so much in the world, I'm just like, I want to I bring it together, I want to give you insight into our world and help you connect it to the gospel. Nicole, who comes here, she sent me, um, uh, she told me to go see a movie, which I haven't seen yet, but called Decadence, The Decline of the Western World. And it's written by um, this former SBS host in which he explores what he calls the demise of the West and the rise of junk culture. And possibly it's too alarmist in its rhetoric. But this is what he says, and I think, I think there's something to it. He says the symptoms of decay and decadence are unmistakable. This is what he says. Those symptoms include... Soaring suicide rates, the West's addiction to antidepressants, they include rampant individualism, emptying churches and the disintegration of families, they include the West's obsession, uh, obsessive devotion to money as the only true measure of worth, and in the West today, he says, humanities are maligned while MBAs are coveted. He says, treadmill consumption, growing income disparity, B-grade leadership, and I'd introduce Carl Sanderlines, are all obvious indications that our society is, you know, adrift. 
And so here's the question that we're kind of considering today. What do you, how do we live in society? What's our relationship to the, to, to the city in all its beauty and beastliness, in, in its sin? Does the city even matter? And I think you'd be tempted to believe that actually cities are bad news, but that's not the case in the Bible. God has great plans for cities, and there's at least um, four... Uh, God has planned four reasons why he likes cities. I'll tell you them, I'll try go through them very quick. In the Old Testament, cities were a place of refuge and shelter for the weak. They're a place of refuge and shelter for the weak, where the strong and the weak, they could thrive together. Now this is important. A city in the Bible is not defined by population. Actually, most of the cities in the Bible were one or two. Three to what three thousand people, which is what the size of I don't know, very very small country town, right? So they, the populations weren't uh, weren't great, but the population was incredibly dense. And what defined a city in the Bible was not population size, but density, because what a city was was any uh, any town with fortification or a wall around the outside. And that wall, life behind the wall, was incredibly different from life outside the wall. Life outside the wall was dangerous. It was incredibly dangerous. And so the first thing that cities did was they were a place of refuge and shelter for the weak. They were secondly a place to find justice. If you um, accidentally hurt someone outside the wall, they'd chase you down and repay you with evil. But in the Old Testament scriptures there were places called the cities of refuge and if you did something accidental you could run there shelter there and the elders of that place would come out and they would judge the case there was jurisprudence so there was not only refuge but there was justice thirdly cities um there was cultural development because you'd have uh, all these people living on top of each other In, in fact the cities back then were probably more more dense in population than New York City. That's how close they were. And what that meant was it just brought different people together. And that's when you started to have specialization. On the farms, there was generalization. You had to do everything yourself. But in the cities, you could specialize. And so culture, arts, business, specialization emerged. And that was a great thing. And that was part of God's plan for the cities. And then fourthly, Cities tended to excite spiritual inquiry. Interesting, in the first century, the pagans, they were the people, the pagan just meant country uh, farmer or countryside, whereas it was in the cities where religion thrived. And every city was built, it tended to be built around a ziggurat. Do you know what a ziggurat is? It's one of those weird temple, layered temple, tall mountains. And generally every city... The tallest thing in the city was their place of worship. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? What's the tallest place in our city, and what is directly underneath it? And does that say something about what we worship in Sydney? Right. So cities did these four things. Place of refuge, place of justice that you could go to, a place of cultural diversity, and then fourthly, a place of spiritual seeking for those four reasons cities were in God's plan good things. Now all those things get corrupted by sin and so instead of uh, a place of refuge you get a place of racism, classism 
and violence. Instead of it being a place where justice happens, the city becomes a way to escape the law. And thirdly, instead of there being cultural uh, development, there's just pride. People go about their business trying to earn a name for themselves at the expense of others. And instead of being a place of spiritual seeking, there are just spiritual lies and people will believe anything. Or you have people so sick of believing anything that they believe in nothing, which is perhaps what Sydney is all about, right? And so cities are a good thing. Um, I mean, that's my first book. And we're looking at Jeremiah 29 here. And we're looking at this because as we start this new series, the series called Gospel in Life, how does the gospel bring together our, uh, bring kind of coherence to our life between Sunday morning and Saturday night? And so the first point we're starting is with cities. And in Jeremiah 29, we see, we see a city. And we're looking at Jeremiah because Babylon, it was a great, powerful, influential, uh, rich city. And, um, and what do you do in a city like that? That's the question. And, but this nation, uh, similar to ours, it had a dark side. And Babylon, they're part of a, a big, strong, superpower nation that went into Israel and they pretty much just wiped them out for their own financial profit. And they, they deported all the people in Israel and Israel in the Old Testament were God's people. They were deported Many of them were killed in battle, they were deported, and they're living in this foreign culture to be as though North Korea sailed down to Sydney, burned our houses, uh, murdered most of the men, and carted back all the women and children and some of us weak men <laughs> with them, right? And they'd take us back there, and we're living in a foreign culture, don't know the language. And what do you do in a place like that? How do you live? And... In Jeremiah 29, God sends Jeremiah to tell them how to live. And how do you relate to the city? Now, there are two ways that most people think you could relate. And the first is by assimilation. You move into the city and you lose your spiritual identity. And the Babylonians are fantastic at that. Um, what they do is they give uh, their, the people that they conquered, they give them great jobs, lots of money, and the best houses. And they'd say, you can have all of these things so long as you become like us. I mean, that's fairly similar to what happens in Sydney as well. You'll get, a, you'll get the best houses, best jobs, if you become like them in the workplace. And so it was a strategy that within a couple of generations, a people group could be completely gone, and you'd actually have um, ethnic unity because the materialism would drive out any difference. And so that was the first way. And the second way was tribalism. And this is what the false prophets of Israel were telling them. And this is what a bunch of false prophets, Christian prophets today, tell us the way we should live toward the city. And this is, if, um, if assimilation is move in and lose your spiritual identity, tribalism is stay out, and retain your spiritual identity. And often you'll have churches preach, don't become, beware of becoming very worldly, which is actually right, you shouldn't become worldly, but beware of how many non-Christian friends you have, you don't want to spend too much time with them out there. And along comes Jeremiah, so you have the Babylonians, they say, come in and become like us. You have the false prophets, they say, stay out, and just stay out and stay pure. 
And then along comes Jeremiah and see what he says in verse 5. And look at this. This is what he says. This is what the Lord says. Verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord God for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to their dreams. Uh, you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Those prophets were saying, stay out. Don't, don't get married. Just stay out. Don't work with these other people. God's going to come and rescue you. And Jeremiah says, no, you're going to be here for 70 years. You're going to be here for a lifetime. And so build houses. And so this is it. How do you live in the city? And his point is, don't stay out and keep your spiritual identity. Don't move in and lose it. He says, move in and retain it. And you see it with four things. And uh, four Ps, right? Maybe it'll help you to memorize them, right? Plant, produce, peacemake, and pray. Is is peacemake the odd one out, Sarah? I think it is. All right. So plant. The first thing he tells them to do is plant. And he says literally plant a garden. And so if you've got a little bit of patch of dirt at home, plant. No, I'm not going to say that. But look at verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what... In other words, establish a life in the city. Be here for the long time, long term. Establish roots. You know, plant your resources, your time your skills, your talents in the garden of society and watch and wait for it to grow so that this city would become a productive, beautiful, dynamic city. And God wanted them, he just wanted them to establish. And some of you need to realise that God might be calling you to do this very thing. Most people in Sydney, especially, especially young people, they move suburbs, move cities, move countries at the drop of a hat because their mission in life to tells them to do it. And very often, it's not Jesus' mission that makes them move cities. It's their own mission. And so they're driven by the desire to own, to succeed, to experience new things, to meet new people, none of which are bad things. They're all good things. But they're pretty trivial things if they are your life's mission. My life's mission is to own a prop. My life's mission is to meet lots and lots of people, and I'll do anything for that. It's just trivial. I mean, big decisions like where you will live, that's not a trivial decision, and it should be motivated by the gospel, by Jesus' mission in the world. What is Jesus doing in our world? Okay, if he's doing this, maybe I will need to move. We're talking, Sarah and I are talking at the moment as to whether she should move to San Francisco and work amongst the homeless there. You know, that, she's, she's thinking, God's mission? How can I be involved in it? Do I need to move cities? And I think that might, I, I mean, I think that might be a great thing to do. But generally, though not always, Jesus would have us build houses, settle down, plant gardens, Eat what they produce. Find a place where you're committed for the long term and make it your home. Make it your home, the place that you seek the wealth. Love it to death. Study it. Be the expert 
on your little your, your your street. Get to know everyone on it. When new people move in, buy them presents. Help them move in. The night afterwards, bring them beers, cold drinks while they're moving. Get to know your area and bless it. Build homes, settle down, plant gardens. And this is the complete reverse to what most Christians uh, do um, who are on mission. You know, first, usually what happens uh, with most most Christians is sadly most people pick a place to live, find a job that'll pay them enough to, to live there, and then hope like hell there's a good church nearby. And that really is the wrong way around. First thing is, where is a good church which will help me be on mission to the people God has sent me? Where are the people God's sending me to? And who are the people that God's gifted me to be able to serve? That's the first thing you've got to work out. Secondly, where do I need to live to make that happen? And then thirdly, what kind of job am I going to need to be able to serve these people and to be able to afford to live here serving these people. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. And, you know, Christians, we lament the fact that we've lost our influence in society despite the fact that 64% of people on the, on the 2006 census identify as Christian. I mean, we have no influence in our city. We, we, are, we are less influential then I don't know what, right? But we, we are very... Uh, Murray, you, you're good at witty one-liners. You need to give me a good witty one-liner for that one. Then the A-League? Okay, maybe, right? <laughs> um, 60, 64% of Sydney siders. Why don't we have any influence? Well, it's because uh, there are twice as many people living out in the areas which have no influence as those living in the areas and working in the areas with influence. There are twice as many people, twice as many Christians living out in the suburbs per population than there are living in Surrey Hills. Twice as many. And so tonight, you may be hearing me say, and you might already be a bit annoyed at me saying that Christians, all Christians, should live in the city. And that's not what God's saying, right? What he's at least saying, though, is that there should be as many Christians in this part of Sydney, as there are in other parts of Sydney, and yet for some reason Christians have moved out. And I think I know why. It's because Christians don't want to be contaminated. I think that was at least the case up until 20 years ago. But I think our generation knows it. And we're like, no, we've got to be committed to our friends in the inner city, and we're moving in, moving in alongside the marginalised and the very wealthy, and it's incredibly hard to do. It's not easy. But if we're going to reach Sydney, this is what's got to happen. You know, God's plan for the redemption of our city is to call us from the fringe of society and to stand up in the setup and have influence in, in the city. And cities are incredibly important. A hundred years ago, 10% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, more than 50% of the world's population live in cities. By 2050, they reckon 80% of the world's population will live in cities. And Christians just don't know how to do centre city ministry. Like, Sydney is a big city. I'm not saying you've got to kind of, um, uh, you've got to all move into the city city, the centre city area. But here's the thing, most of us, um, churches don't tend to thrive in the city centre areas and especially the inner city areas 
But if we're going to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus, more Christians are going to need to move in. Okay, that's the first thing, right? Plant. Plant down roots. Some of us, God is calling you today to move closer, or at least to stay where you are as you serve the city. Secondly, produce. Verse 5, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Don't decrease. We're called not just to live in the city, but to be productive in the city. To increase in number and not to decrease. To increase in influence. To increase in number. And this means that we're to grow stronger and more numerous. And so if God, if you're a Christian and uh, God... And, God, and if God is calling you to be a husband or wife, then you should have kids at some point. And you should raise them up loving Jesus. You know, don't forget Psalm 127. Fill your quiver with arrows and shoot them at the, the enemy. Right? That's Psalm 120, uh, 127. That's what your children are. Fathers, Ben, Stammers, Stegs, wherever you are. Uh, fill your quiver with arrows. And they are your children. And shoot them straight at the devil, right? That, that is the picture the Bible gives us. And in order to shoot them straight, you know, in war, you need to train them straight. So that's your job. This is your mission, to raise them so that they will shoot dead straight at the enemy and that Jesus will become famous in our city. And these are the rhythms of life and the context in which we do mission. Justin asked the question last week, what are the missional opportunities we're going to be involved in this week? Hoping, I would say, a whole bunch of events. And we are going to do a lot of events this year. But what I said last week, I've got to reiterate, is that primarily our mission as Christians just happens in ordinary, everyday life. You're building a house. Your builder's there. You've got a Bible on the table. He goes, what's that? It's my Bible. Are you spiritual? No, I'm not. Why would I be that? Well, why aren't you? Most people believe in a God. Do you believe in an a God? You know, you have a... What's the next thing? Um, build buildings. Um, plant a garden. Plant a garden. Take, a, take the produce around to your neighbours and say, hey, got too many tomatoes, carrots and, um, and parsley. Would you like some? And start a friendship there. Um, marry and have sons and daughters. Throw parties and bless the city. Invite them to the party and say, here's what marriage is all about. It's not primarily about my love for this person. It's primarily about God's love for us. Have kids and, and, and meet their friends and have them over and have the best parties out of all their friends. And I mean best parties, not the most expensive parties, but the funnest parties. Because you as parents love kids, whereas most of the other parents can't wait to get rid of their kids, right? This is the, and the city is a great place to produce and have kids. I just sat down. I said, "Why is it a great place?" Well, the great diversity of people, the great diversity of people, will teach your kids uh, how to relate to people who are different from them. That's the first thing. I love the fact that Maisie's growing up here because there's so many different people. She's got to learn to relate to different people. Secondly, the smallness of their kids' church teach them that they are missionaries to our city. Uh, the art and culture will teach them to appreciate the common grace, the fact that God has given people who aren't Christian incredibly gifts, and we don't despise those gifts, but we appreciate um, them. Uh, the size of 
Fourthly, the size and complexity will teach them to be wise and resourceful. Fifthly, the the sinners and the sinned against and those who are marginalised in our city will teach my kids that the city has enormous needs and that they really need Jesus' love incredibly much, right? That's what the city teaches them. So produce. If you're married, have kids, raise them, raise them straight so that you can shoot an arrow and kill the devil and make Jesus famous. Okay, thirdly, peacemake. And this is probably my longest point. Uh, verse 7, look at this. And this is, this is amazing. Uh, verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Notice it says that, that God carried them into exile, right? They've been destroyed, homes destroyed, but God has carried them. In other words, God has sent them to this place. And God has sent you to wherever you live uh, in this part of the world, to your workplace, to your friend. You have been sent there. And what are you sent to do? You're sent to seek the peace and prosperity of, of their lives. Literally... This word is a beautiful Hebrew word. The the word is shalom. Uh, The word shalom, and we've got two English words trying to do what this one beautiful Hebrew word does so easily. And our two words are peace, which for us it pretty much just means a cessation of any conflict. And then uh, the the prosperity um, usually just means how your net worth is growing, but that's not all... (laughs) What this idea of shalom is. Shalom is universal flourishing. It's wholeness. It's delight. It's comprehensive peace. It's, it's um, happiness and wholeness. It's everything right in the city. And that's what shalom is. And Tim, Tim Keller, he gives a great picture of this. This is what he says. He says, God created the world to be a fabric. Everything to be woven together and to be interdependent. Right? If, and he goes, if I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be an aggregation of threads just lying on top of each other. But threads, when they are a fabric, they become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, and into, and through every one of the others. The more in, interdependent they are, the more beautiful is the piece of fabric, And so when God made our world, he didn't just make it of a, as, as an aggregation of people who are exactly the same. He made it be, to be beautiful. So that a beautiful, harmonious, knitted web of interdependent relationships. And that's shalom, right? It's this tapestry, a fabric of interrelated connectedness. It's peace, it's wholeness, it's health, it's harmony. And yet that is exactly what our city isn't right and why is that well it's because at the beginning of history we human beings we broke the harmony of the fabric and um and we started to pull at the fabric and we began to live against our ultimate good we stopped being interdependent and we started to be dependent on no one and we became our own rulers another example would be you know a balloon full of water and every time just one little selfish thought or one little selfish action what happened when Adam and Eve first did that was it was like a pin to a balloon full of water and it popped and our and our world has just thrown itself all over the place and we live in a world that is disordered 
that isn't the way it's supposed to be. That where there's no shalom, no interconnectedness, well, not no, but uh, often there isn't much of it. And each new generation enters a world which has lost its Eden. And we all choose that. Because we all, at some point in our life, chooses what will be good for me and bad for others, and we just completely ignore what God has to do with it. And the Bible's account of the human predicament is that we've all been choosing wrong from the very beginning. I think it was Mark Twain who said, Man is the only creature that blushes. He's the only creature that needs to. I think that's kind of telling, because we blush uh, because we do evil. I think it's telling. This is, of course, what we mean when we talk about sin-destroying life. Sin is not just against God. It's even not just against others, though that ruins the shalom, the fabric. But sin is also against ourselves. And so what we each experience is psychological alienation from ourselves. Our society is alienated from one another. And we're alienated from God. You know, I think of the movie... um, Avatar, which, you know, uh, lots and lots wrong with it spiritually, right? It's, it's a pan, pantheistic or panentheistic movie about how we are all part of God. But one of the great things it does, if you remember watching it, is it shows you this perfect and pristine Eden. And along comes humanity, and because of their pride and greed... They destroy the Eden. And that is exactly what we've done to our world. There is no shalom anymore. And yet the prophets, Jeremiah, he comes along and they dream of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, where rough places are made plain. They dreamed of a time where the deserts would flower and the mountains would drip with wine. Hear the metaphors that the prophets folks. Um, weeping would cease and people would go to sleep with weapons on their laps. People, they'd go to sleep with weapons on their laps. Why would they go to sleep with a weapon on their lap? Because they don't have to be worried about using it on anyone. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs would lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, filled with wonder upon wonder. And humans would be knitted together in a brotherhood and sisterhood. We would love one another, seek God and serve the city. And the webbing together of humans, God and creation in justice, fulfillment and delight, that is what Shalom is all about. Do you want it? Don't you so badly want that? Well, centuries after Jeremiah, Jesus entered Jerusalem, a city. Jerusalem. Do you hear the, the reference? Jerusalem was to be God's city where there was shalom, Jerusalem, right? And it was the city of God. And along comes the great healer, the restorer of humanity. And what happens to him? He's kicked out of the city and he's murdered outside the city gates. He comes to heal it, but he's murdered. Um, But actually, surprisingly, in a great twist of irony, in being kicked out and in being murdered, By this city. This is the very way Jesus brings shalom and peace to our world. You know, you never execute anybody inside the city, um, so it was necessary to send them outside the city to die because it was symbolic 
of what the consequence of sin was. When you sin, when, when you are selfish and you commit a crime in that day, you would be removed from the city and killed on a hilltop outside the city. And the picture is you've lost community. You've lost the blessing and you've lost life itself. But this symbol, it wasn't a symbol for Jesus, it was a reality. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14, if you've got a Bible, turn this open. Because this is probably the most important passage on cities in the whole Bible. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Actually, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high most holy place of, as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Do you hear what he's saying there? Jesus on the cross, he was cosmically thrown out of every good and great thing God had. He was, it was as though he was thrown out of the eternal city so that we, who have been kicked out of the eternal city, we've been kicked out of Eden because of our sin and selfishness, how we've broken the fabric of, of shalom, we've been kicked out so that we could be brought in. Sin deserves to be kicked out of the city. And so we deserve to be kicked out of God's eternal city. And yet the promise is that you won't be, if you die, you'll go to be part of that city because Jesus was kicked out of the earthly one for you. And he took with him your sin. And he died for your sin on the cross so that you bear it no more. So that when you walk into the eternal city, God won't say, why have you got all this sin with you? You're not allowed in here. We'll walk into the eternal city clothed in Jesus' goodness, the Bible says. And so if you haven't come to Jesus, look at him. Look at what he says in the Bible. I'm not asking you to make a decision tonight, but it is a great decision. The gospel is called good news because it's the news that your sins have been taken outside the city so that when you walk into the eternal city, you walk in looking like Jesus and God will let you in. On the cross, Jesus was cosmically thrown out so that we would be brought in. And now, how does that create shalom? How does that create any shalom in the city? How does this make us how does this make us to be sorry I've lost this place. How does this make us to be salt and light in our city? Well, let me try and explain it to you. Um, Saint Augustine, he he came up with this idea that in every city there are two cities. The city of man and the city of of God, And you've got to listen to this. I know uh, this is going on, but this is where this sermon will help your life most this week. He says two cities, the city of God and the city of man. In the city of man, everyone goes into the city of man to make a name for themselves, to get a self, to get a sense of self, to get a name, to get power, to get recognition, to get a, rec- a resume. 
And as a result, he says, it ends up the city of man being a place of exhaustion. Because you go to the city to get. And you never, you never tire of trying to get love, trying to get power, trying to get recognition and a resume. And this makes it a place of exhaustion. And secondly, it also makes it a place of oppression. Because when we're there just to get, we'll, we'll get even if it costs other people. And then in contrast, though, you have the city of God, which works not on the basis of pride, but of peace. Not on the basis of human effort, but God's grace. And this makes the city of God a place not of exhaustion, not of oppression, but a place of joy. The city of man, it is your life to benefit me. The city of God is my life to benefit you And very often, these cities are referred to in the Bible as Jerusalem, the city of God, and Babylon. And so, here's the question, which city do we live in? The city of man, right? We live in Babylon. Well, not quite, because this is what, I, this is what Augustine says. He says, within every city, you have both cities. And up until Jeremiah, everyone thought it was like you had the two cities and they were separate. And so you could either move in and lose the city of God, or stay out and keep the city of God. But along comes Jeremiah, who says, no, move in and create the city of God in the city of man. And grow the city of God in the city of man. Every city has two cities. There's a city of God, like a mini city, in every city, as an alternative city in which they take sex money and power and they use them not to exploit others but they use them in life-giving ways and that's what our church has as a mission you go out we don't just get in a holy huddle and we only friends with one another that's called a cult and that's weird don't join one of them become part of jesus mission to the world starting a city within the world the city of god where you take sex money and power and you use them in life giving way you're working for social peace in our social shalom and so you you help different ethnicities reconcile you work for economic shalom you don't just have a career to enhance how big your house is but you have a career and your aim in your career is to seek the prosperity of everyone in the city everyone in the city And if you don't feel that way about Sydney, then you're not thinking about the city of God, the way God thinks about our city. God is saying, don't lose your difference. But don't think too much about your difference. Don't guard it jealously. He says, move in and stay different. Because if you want to make a difference, you've got to stay different. You've got to be different. Now, Rodney Stark, and I think I'll conclude on this and I'll skip out the point on prayer, right? You get the point, last point, prayer? Pray for the city, right? Very, very simple um, thing. Interestingly, these people were the enemies of God's people. And so, in effect, he's saying, pray for your enemies, uh, which was the most revolutionary teaching of Jesus as well. But here's the point. God's saying, move in and don't lose your difference. On the inside of your cover, there's a quote from Rodney Stark who's a sociologist of religion. And what he's trying to do, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And his task was this. His task was, how did 12 disciples in a room, terrified, 
come and take over the empire so that Christianity was the biggest religion 300 years later. And this is what he says. Um, uh, he, he, he looks at Christianity, especially through the lens of the plagues, many of the plagues which occurred in the first century, and this is what he says. He says, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that uh, movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, and fear and brutality of life in the Greco-Roman world. It provided new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers as well as strangers, Christianity offered an immediate base for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new expanded sense of family. They adopted. They'd walk by... I mean, in the first century, they practiced infanticide. If they didn't like the gender of their child, they'd throw that child out with the garbage. And Christians would walk past and see the image of God in one of these babies and they'd pick them up and they would raise them. They had an expanded sense of family. Uh, To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis of social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. What he's talking about there is there were plagues. And during the plague, everyone moved out except for the sick who couldn't walk out. So you had the sick who were dying, who couldn't go out and get any food, and so they would just die, uh, die of hunger or die from their disease. And everyone else moved out of the city except for the Christians. And the Christians stayed and they served people and they helped people and when the dying pagans recovered from the pagans they were faced with the question wait what what are you doing here and the christians said we're not here for money we're not here to make a name for ourselves we don't need money we don't need acceptance we actually don't even need to live you kill us we're going to heaven And so as a result, the gospel captured the imaginations of people. And at one influence, it didn't capture their imaginations by trying to take over and by getting into power. It actually got power by becoming humble and giving up power and just serving people. They got amongst people. They risked their lives serving people. They sought the peace and prosperity of the city because they knew that they belonged to an eternal city to which they were going, and so they could actually have courage, risk their life in doing that. That is what we're called to do, Vine Church, this year. That's what we're called to do, to go out into the city, not to create us-them relationships, but to go alongside people and to serve and to use sex, money, and power in life-giving, not exploitative ways. And as we do that, people, perhaps, slowly, not always... But sometimes, the New Testament says, people will, will see us and they'll see a light shining out of us and we'll say, hey, there's no light in here, it's just Jesus. You need to meet Jesus. That's what we're on about this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're excited that that's what you're on about in the world, that you love cities 
Uh, You love country towns as well because you love people. But Father, we pray that you'd help us to reverse uh, the flight from the cities. Father, we pray that some of the people here would be called to living long term and being on mission in in the city. Father, for those who are called elsewhere, we pray that we wouldn't despise their calling to their place. But Father, we pray that we'd support them as they go out into their different places. Father, we pray that you'd place us wherever people are. And wherever the most people are, we pray that you'd place the most of us. Father, we thank you that the gospel is about life and change. And that there is a fabric which has been torn apart, but which you are putting back together. Help us to use the places of influence you've placed us to serve and to love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.